1: I think what we're facing, though, is, you know, some people call it hybrid war. I think it's better, in my mind, it's better to think about it as unrestricted competition. So it's not war. No one's shooting at us. But there's a real serious competition. The gloves are off, if you like, on a range of fronts. You're listening to the National Security Podcast,
0: the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion. On the National Security Challenges Facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific Produced by the ANU National Security College Well, welcome back to the National Security Podcast I'm Will Stoltz from the National Security College We're recording today on the lands of the Nungwal and Ngambri people and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present Today, I'm pleased to be joined by two ANU colleagues Professor John Blaxland and Claire Bergen to discuss their new book, Revealing Secrets, An Unofficial History of Australian Signals Intelligence and the Advent of Cyber. Welcome, Claire and John. Thank you. G'day, Will. So I wanted to start by getting a sense of the kind of broad sweep of this, this agency that uh, Australians have kind of only recently started to become fully aware of, the Australian Signals Directorate. In your book, you kind of chart the the long stretch of uh, the organisations that build up to the modern ASD, and you point out the shifts in um, what we describe as signals intelligence technology. But what are the kind of characteristics or continuities that ASD still actually has with these original organisations, many of them kind of formed uh, out of the result of the First World War and Second World War, given that the technology has changed so much? Uh, Perhaps, Claire, you'd like to take that one first.
2: I believe I, I think that uh, this, this may be a slightly different kind of answer, but I think that the the culture, in a way, has remained the same. Uh, one of the things that Hope commented on in his review was how ASD, which was then called DSD, was a, a cloistered environment with twin constraints of very great specialization. And secrecy, which could have actually together ruined morale, made people, you know, made people climb the walls. But in fact, what happened was that it created a great esprit de corps, and what we've noticed um, quite sterling qualities, which we tend to associate with Australians, like being very resourceful. Uh, being able to manage, um, as we've said in the book, on, on the smell of an oil rag and still achieve really good results and also the contributions, really dispro- disproportionately great contributions by gifted individuals like the, co- the, the famous codebreaker Eric Knave and also, also by women uh, who, whose contribution is also very little known. Has been little known. I hope it's going to be more known now.
1: Absolutely. Mm. I, I would just add that, um, just to clarify for the f- for the title of the book, it, it's its own unofficial history of Australian signals intelligence, of which ASD is a very important part. Uh, and as Claire has pointed out, there's some exceptional people in there, but there's also um, army, navy, and air force components that mm. uh, feature. Throughout the book, in various guises, and it's it's a collaborative venture. It's not just ASD. It's uh, ASD with input from the army, the navy, and the air force, and some exceptional people who totally were totally happy to serve in yep. that space.
2: No, yeah. I'm I'm uh, I was I meant to add that actually because it's it's exactly the same when we're talking about the twin constraints. It's the same for those organisations, isn't Mm, it? mm. That they can't, they haven't been able to talk about their work. It's highly concentrated, but they really believe in it.
0: Yeah. So the book has looked at that ecosystem of institutions that that circulate around signals intelligence. But obviously in the course of researching something like this, you would have uncovered all sorts of personal stories uh, about people in uniform and civilians uh, who have who've worked in signals intelligence. Are there any particular individual stories that really stand out to you or that stuck in your mind as a result of doing this research?
2: Oh, so, so many of them. Uh, there's One of my favourite characters in the book is someone called Alistair Sanford who started off as um, a very eccentric intelligence officer in the Middle East, very eccentric, made sure that people got really nice uh, Cretan wine and so on, but was also extremely brave. He was fearless and won medals and so on for gallantry. But he became the Australian deputy of Central Bureau when it was formed and was quite an extraordinary diplomat, very, very, very clever, um, very, very working, but uh, seemed to be able to, working with other people, just through very fast footwork, uh, do quite extraordinary things and and got on very well, which was really important at the time, got on very well with both the Brits and the Americans. And one one of the things he did, for example, was when our world-famous codebreaker, Eric Knave, was about to be recalled to England, where he didn't want to go, Sanford, working with the D, it's the deputy DMI, wasn't yeah. Um, yeah. managed to ah, and also working with senior represent, military representative in London, managed by some machinations, which I only uh, I about ninety percent understand what he did, but he managed to get him back.
1: Mm.
2: So brilliant person, and and then there was the woman who. Uh, Berenice Wormald, who was a teletype operator when the Japanese Coral Fleet was sighted. And uh, because the Japanese codes had been broken by then, they, they were they were not allowed to go out, except with armed guards with instructions to shoot them rather than let them fall into Japanese hands. Yeah. So some of the stories were really quite hair-raising, actually.
1: Yeah. I would, I would add also that When it came to the post-Second World War period, uh, we had intended uh, to interview quite a lot of elderly contributors to the post-war SIGINT arrangements, and one of our team um, had actually already commenced interviewing, um, and we unfortunately weren't able to use those interviews because they they weren't released for us to use. Uh, they were classified. They remained classified. That was
2: such a pity. Um,
1: but we were able to tap in a little bit to uh, uh, characters like James Armstrong, Commander James Armstrong, uh, who after whom the James Armstrong building in Nowra is named, the founder of uh, really the instrumental figure in the development of the Royal Australian Navy Tactical Electronic Warfare Support Squadron, RANTU's. And because with strong lineage connection to fleet radio unit Melbourne or Frumel in the Second World War, which was so instrumental in assisting the Allied efforts in um, not only the Battle of Coral Sea but uh, the Battle of Midway
2: as mm, well tracking, which, tracking submarines they're, they're amazing yeah
1: um, and other figures like then major Clive Williams, um, uh, who's there at the closure of DSD's facility at Victoria barracks uh, sorry relocating um, to to Victoria barracks in, in 1979 um, he's a colleague at, at ANu uh, an, a long-standing uh, deep thinking reflective individual um, so but there's snippets like that which we managed to include mm. but there are many many more that uh, weren't unfortunately able to be included uh, which hopefully Uh, in the future, somebody will have a chance to. Mm.
0: But excellent that you were able to create a record of those personal insights, uh, even if they still are remaining classified. Um, Claire, you mentioned the kind of that characteristic of of resourcefulness um, that kind of cut across the history of these institutions. I'm interested to kind of think about that resourcefulness at the the turn of the last century in in the early years when these organisations were being set up Particularly mm. around the First World War, mm. where did Australia sit in comparison to other countries when it came to signals intelligence at that time?
2: Well, at that at that time, jo- John will have something to say about that. But at that time, we we were honing our skills in traffic analysis. Mm. At which Australia, I, I I never knew this, but uh, Australia was actually the best, mm. and that is actually. Almost um, a synonym for resourcefulness because it's getting everything you can from a message. If you don't, if you're not a cryptologist, you you, you, you get the frequency, the location, the level of the person who's sending it, and uh, in terms, in operational terms, if there's an emergency, it's the most important thing. And guess who was the best? The Australians were the best, and they. They taught themselves. They were un- unskilled, learned how to do it, um, insisted on it being used. So they were really... Um, and this was recognised. You don't hear this from the Australians themselves. It mm. was actually recognised by the SIGINT historian, wasn't British, it?
1: British SIGINT historian.
2: Nig- Nigel Degree yes. commented on it. The Australians held the lead, really.
1: And, and now in modern parlance, it's really metadata analysis. Mm. It's mm. It's looking at all the the peripheral data uh, around the message which tells you a lot about what that message is about uh, without actually, because quite a lot of the time, you know, uh, messages would be collected but the decryption would take some time. The decryption of the core parts of the message would take some time. In in the interim, that metadata analysis, if you like, the the traffic analysis, was really what was going to provide that time-sensitive assistance to our own forces mm. as they sought to gain advantage and preposition and perhaps avoid an ambush or get ahead and, you know, uh, get one step ahead of the enemy. And so that kind of work, uh, as Claire says, was something we were renowned for, uh, but not in terms of popular Australian folklore because Mm. this was kept so secret for so long.
2: And Australians are really diffident Mm. as well naturally. Uh, You know, so the combo of being diffident naturally and having to be quiet about it for such a long time Mm. has meant that really very little was known for a long time about it. Yeah.
0: So when we jump forward then to that immediate post-war Period when there's the decision made to set up a a dedicated standing signals intelligence organisation in the defence portfolio, the Defence Signals Bureau, Um, who are the people that are putting their hand up to to join this organisation given the war's finished um, and that there is this kind of comparatively low profile of this profession?
1: So essentially it's um, war, it's veterans initially, uh, mm. For the first, the first generation of SIG-inters in the post-war period are people who were in Central Bureau and Frumal, and D Special Section, the diplomatic special section, uh, as well as some people who were in Section Twenty Two, the the radar. Now, now we'd call it ELINT, electronic intelligence. Uh, that the, the analysts in that space, uh, who felt that they had something to contribute and who wanted to continue operating in that space. Uh, and and the, the, the fundamental problem we, we experienced was that while we were expert, as Claire says, on traffic analysis, we weren't great at cryptography and we didn't. The computing power that we got from the Americans, uh, IBMs, was they took it with them when they left. Uh, think well. Let's, let's not forget 1945. Who we thought, "Well, why would you still need this?" It was. It was only about 1947 that it really became apparent that we did. Um, so this kind of rump body was h- s- s- congregated at Victoria Barracks in Melbourne, um, with trying to figure out what to do with the post-war residual arrangements of special wireless groups around the country, Central Bureau, Frumal you know, what to do with this because it seemed so incredibly uh, successful. People – there was, a, I think, a reluctance to just say, well, okay, that's all over. We go back to what we did sort of in 1919 where we just go back to what we did prior to the war, which is – it just seemed not right, uh, particularly after two world wars. There was a sense of, okay, maybe maybe, maybe we kind of need something into the peacetime period that's going to protect the nation.
2: in it- it, John John is right that um we didn't have the critical mass in cryptography, but we did have some great code breakers we had the, there were a few of them but they were remarkable I, um eric eric knave um mm-hmm. was world famous wasn't wasn't th- he th- as an th- a Astra week as well and the yes mm-hmm. and, and Dale Trendle were yeah. were all um remarkably good and there were women code women code breakers who yeah. were women signalers were extremely good and one of the things that hope said in 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 i think his 7th report mm-hmm. he said that they're um as good as the men and sometimes even better so, <laughs> yeah
1: which back in the day <laughs> was was quite a, quite a thing <laughs> to say yeah. this is half a century ago mm. remember yeah
0: so sticking with that that early cold war kind of period in which these uh, agencies are finding their feet. Um, You know, John, you've obviously written extensively about ASIO's history Mm. and kind of looking adjacently to the counterparts, so to speak, in terms of the other fields of intelligence. You know, ASIO and ASIS are having a bit of a rocky start. There's a few teething problems that they're having as they're being established Mm. as dedicated intelligence agencies. Is a DSB having a kind of similar experience, or are they they having a little bit more of a smoother transition?
1: So there was a hang up with confidence in Australian security, and this was linked to SIGINT, in particular, to the revelations coming from decrypted Soviet diplomatic cables under the code name of Venona. Um, David Horner and uh, Des Ball, uh, the late great colleague, Des Ball wrote about this in their book, Breaking the Codes. But David really, uh, David Horner, did justice to this in his first volume of the ASIO official history, um, The Spy Catchers. Uh, ASIO was set up to catch the nest of spies that the Venona revelations pointed towards. And so there was an enormous, there's a, there's a foundational link between SIGINT and HUMINT, if you like, at the outset of the uh, at the creation of ASIO, um, and of course that then affects what happens in uh, in the SIGINT world as well, because there's a question of trust. How can you trust Australia? And there's a it takes a few years. It's really by 1953 when uh, Brits and the American SIGINTers come to Melbourne for the 1953 trilateral conference, where we see kind of the, the the wartime. Levels of trust and collaboration resume. So, eight years after the war, um, six years after the foundation of ASD or DSB as it was initially, Defence Signals Bureau, um, we see the the the, the operations of, of, of DSB as it was. Um, they had been producing from nineteen forty seven. They had been active, collecting and reporting, um, but the two way street, if you like, of, of collaboration and, and sharing happens on a trusted, more continued and routine basis from nineteen fifty three onwards, uh, and then uh, it, it, it only it only broadens and deepens after that.
0: So, is it in that nineteen fifties early nineteen fifties period that we can say that the work of DSB? starts to get properly integrated into the intelligence operations of ASIO and ASIS and, and other intelligence agencies in Australia as well as the Five Eyes?
1: Yeah, so there's there's a degree of uh, disconnect between the agencies originally. I mean, ASIO is founded in 49. ASIS is not until the early 50s, 51, 52. Um, uh, DSB had been founded in 1947 they have separate cultures they have separate organizational linkages and uh, lineages to the antecedents of the second world war and they uh they there's not the sense of the australian intelligence community uh that emerges after the hope reforms of the 1970s mm-hmm. so these are quite disparate organizations you know there was a saying that lingered for quite some time, particularly when there was a disconnect geographically between the assessment agencies, particularly JIO slash DIO, Defence Intelligence Organisation. Uh, when they used to talk about SIGINT for Jesus, you know, in other words, who who asked for this SIGINT? Well, Christ knows, you know. Uh, so it, it was like there was this. Uh, Disconnect between the priorities of of the reporting assessment agencies and the collection agencies who felt that they knew what was required. They knew the business and don't tell us how to do what we do. Um, And so the kind of coordination that you see now with the heads of intelligence agencies meetings and the national intelligence community with a director general of national intelligence coordinating that, that was just absent. Um, Now, to be fair... In 1947, there was a director, joint, uh, chief of joint intelligence appointed, uh, a brigadier appointed, but it was it, it fell by the wayside. It didn't gain momentum. It didn't uh, gain broader recognition and acceptance. And by the by the 1950s, as these organisations are reporting separately to their agent, to their secretaries and attorneys, um, attorneys general, uh, in a way that. Um. um Leaves a lot to be desired, uh, but you know, we a couple of reasons why that doesn't happen quickly is partly because of the success of Asia with the Petrov defections of Vladimir and Evdokia, who, who give uh, you know a whole new lease on life to the to the ASIO its uh, uh, reputation. And there's an afterglow effect for the for the rest of the intelligence community as well. There's a sense that mm-hmm. oh, you, you Aussies do this well. Um, that meant that they were left largely un you know. Uh, to their own devices for quite some time. It was and,
2: very timely, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with
0: Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: In this
0: disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia. So what about ministerial support for um, signals intelligence? It's an area of intelligence that for a lot of cabinet ministers, they might not naturally be able to get their head around just in the same way that they can for human intelligence or other areas. I mean, intelligence generally can often be esoteric for the ministers that are having to sign off on spending and these sorts of things. To what extent was there kind of... um, Know, enthusiasm or high-level backing for the creation of a dedicated signals intelligence agency for Australia, and, and I suppose conversely, similarly to that, you know, we saw at various times degrees of suspicion on the intelligence community from cabinet ministers. Um, was that something that that uh, DSB experienced as well?
2: Well, just just to answer that um, in a slightly different way, for for quite a while. Uh, the signals agency se- seemed not to ask f- very for very much money and was actually um mildly criticized by hope for not doing that this was the living on the smell of an oil rag they they were um very modest in their demands and he suggested that that actually had you know had affected them and that that they ought to be asking for more so i think it was perhaps um perhaps a two-way street and as, as you know they've just they've just received a whole lot of money for this red spice program mm.
0: not so modest now
2: no <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so I want to ask about the five eyes uh, agreement it's you know fairly well known now but um obviously it was very very secret arrangement and uh, signals intelligence was the kind of core nucleus around the creation of of Five Eyes, and in your book you kind of chart the the various um, agreements that kind of come to form part of that signals uh, intelligence sharing arrangement. Why do you think it was that it was signals intelligence that was the the core nucleus of this of what has become a much wider sharing arrangement? Why not um, another uh, area of collaboration?
2: Ah, uh, because of Enigma because it's the most secret form of intelligence because it was absolutely crucial. Uh, it was really like the Holy Grail, I think.
1: And, and also, the it, Claire's right, but it was the collaboration in, in, you know, the Battle of the Coral Sea, Battle of Midway, but also US-UK cooperation on breaking the German codes and then the Japanese codes that... Um, Pointed to the utility of collaboration um, and the efficacy of doing so over great distances um, in a way that the other Intel domains weren't able uh, to replicate to the same extent in the early days, uh, in the pre you know VTC um, era, if you like. So there was there was an um, The technology facilitated it, Um, the radio networks, and there's a couple of diagrams in the books, in 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 the book about the extensive uh, networks of, uh, you know, you could you could collect something in Melbourne um, with uh, from our HF radio receiving station and you could transmit it back for London to then work on decrypting. And then they could then pass it across to Washington. You know, this could happen in a way that uh, really capitalised on the various complementarities, if you like, the strengths and weaknesses of each uh, element of the of what became the SIGINT Five Eyes Network. Uh, that proved incredibly effective in the Second World War and was then reinforced... In the way the, the West, particularly the UK and the United States, responded to the rise of the Soviet threat um, and post-1949, the expansion of uh, communism across Asia. Um, the Korean War, I think, is also significant. Uh, the collaboration there, even though we talk about the Korean War early on, it's, it's a bit of a failure, because no one was paying attention, there's very few Korean linguists. It's not like the lead up to the Second World War, where there was lots of German and Japanese speakers available to tap into. There was very few Korean linguists who could actually do anything with the information they were collecting from Korea. Uh, that that pointed to collaboration. The collaboration over Hong Kong, uh, where Australia was working closely with the Brits. These kind of these kind of things uh, uh, accrued. Confidence and trust, and
2: and just just going back a bit, things happened like the Zimmerman telegram, mm. where where the, our friend Nigel Nigel de Grey again mm. said, "Do you want to bring the Americans into the into the war?" Mm. And uh, and really by by decrypting this telegram that promised um, promised Mexico. New Mexico and Texas back after the war, if they kept the United States Army busy on the Mexican border, Mm. brought the Americans into the war. So Mm. there were, even though that wasn't, that was covered up at the time, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know,
2: for source protection, Mm. but um, things like that were known and I think they reinforced.
0: Yep. So sticking then, I guess, with this incredible, trusted, integrated relationship that's been forged with with Five Eyes, um, you know, one of the crown jewels of ASD is the, the Pine Gap Joint Facility, and it's probably the most kind of physical manifestation of this integration that we can, we can point to. Um, tell us a bit about uh, what, what Pine Gap was set up initially to, to do and potentially about the process of uh, negotiating an arrangement of this kind of integrated facility.
1: So yeah, the Joint Space Research Facility, as it was known originally, uh, established signed in 1966, operational by 69. Uh, this is you know it, it actually morphs as technology uh, changes; its capabilities expand significantly from detecting um, by the by collecting data from satellites, um, detecting the. Plumes of uh, uh, ballistic uh, nuclear uh, missile testing uh, across, you know, the the steps of Asia, uh, of the of, of Soviet of the Soviet Union and in China, um, to having with the digital revolution, um, an expanded ability to uh, collect information across the radio frequency spectrum and the light spectrum. Um, from uh, geostationary orbits that can hoover up just extraordinary amounts of data uh, from which uh, analysts would then have to sort and select, be very, very selective about what to extract um, to then use for intelligence analysis purposes. Uh, initially, the, the Joint de- uh, s- Space Research Facility then became known as the Joint Defence Facility, Pine Gap. Um, it, it, um, it had a, it had a, a shared responsibility, uh, initially mostly American, uh, over time, particularly with successive governments pushing for uh, greater uh, Australian say, uh, greater involvement, uh, greater... Um, ability to uh, understand how it's being used and be able to say to the Australian people, the electorate, that uh, Australia had full knowledge and concurrence, full knowledge of its capabilities and concurrence with its broad operational purposes without actually seeking to um, require Australian government endorsement for every single usage of it, mm. so full knowledge. That's a broad full knowledge and concurrence, but to the point where uh, you know, over time we get to, to where we are today, where the floor, the operations floor at Pine Gap, is operated by Australians and Americans in joint teams, where the deputy director of the facility is an Australian, uh, where there is a level of trusted collaboration, the likes of which um, it is it is said. Uh, is even more trusting and collaborative than with the Brits and their counterpart organisation at Menworth Hill in the UK. Mm. It's quite extraordinary.
2: Mm. And
1: most Australians don't appreciate how consequential the facilities at Pine Gap are. In the book, as far as we can, not drawing on classified material, we try and explain just how consequential it is, and to do that we draw on public statements from uh, s- senior figures, politi- politicians over the years who've, who, who, interesting, both sides of politics have, uh, as they've been briefed in, had an, what I would describe as an aha moment. You know, they get this sense of, OMG, mm-hmm. it's that <laughs> amazing, you know, um, and then, so successive governments, uh, Labor Co- coalition, have endorsed its utility, its efficacy, and its significance for the defence of Australia and its interests. And you know, wh- when the digital revolution trans- uh, took place, there was a, there was this kind of existential moment where. ASD worried about, well, what do we do now? Now that people are going off mm. HF, you know, HF radio, mm. analog HF radio, what do we do? Well, not little did they realise that a whole new world was opening up that was going to present enormous opportunities and enormous challenges as well. And Pine Gaps is front and centre in that equation. Mm. And
0: talking about that disruptive kind of digital era uh, and how the organisation adapted, um, you know, it's been interesting to reflect on some of the really core principles that were laid down in the, the HOPE Royal Commission of 1977 around mm-hmm. how a signals intelligence agency should operate in Australia. Yeah. And some of those core principles, I wonder if they are subject to um, ongoing disruption. And, and one of the, the key ones I'm thinking about in particular is this delineation that HOPE laid down that ASD uh, should primarily only engage in foreign intelligence collection; that it shouldn't be undertaking its own self-initiated domestic intelligence collection. Yep. Given the digital disruption um, that that you've mentioned, I mean, how sustainable do you think some of those principles laid down in Hope will be? Uh, can they be kind of technologically agnostic, or do they have to be potentially reevaluated?
2: Well, I would just say that brilliant as Hope was, um, and definitely and had huge Powers of foresight, really quite mm. remarkably, he didn't foresee uh, the cyber threat uh, that we're facing at the moment. I don't yes,
1: know. I agree, mm. and that's that's had a transformative effect on on the enterprise, on the second enterprise. Uh, so you know, we talk about uh, some of the saga, some of the, the scandals, some of the revelations that are out there in the media. Um, we also talk about how um, the intelligence community, particularly as it affects ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, uh, goes from being uh, an organisation, a community that is operating on prime ministerial executive directives and over time becomes very much subject to uh, legislation that is open for scrutiny By the public, and then uh, mechanisms are put in place, largely at the instigation of uh, recommendations made by Hope, um, to have oversight and accountability for these secretive bodies in a way that can provide the Australian people with confidence that the trust that they have been that has been placed in them to operate in secret is uh, that they are worthy of that trust. And uh, that, that, so the, the functions that have emerged, um, particularly following the implementation of the Intelligence Services Act of 2001, that saw the intelligence community, the collection agencies of the intelligence community, placed under transparent legislation that everybody could see mm-hmm. and then added to, by in 2005, with the Australian Geospatial Intelligence Organisation. So by 2005, all of the intelligence collection agencies uh, have detailed, uh, articulate uh, outlines of what is within their powers to which they are held accountable by agent, bodies, in, particularly the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, which operates a bit like Damocles' sword, mm-hmm. hanging over the head of all of the the collection agencies and their analysts. Um, and I, I've had this conversation with a number of people inside ASD in the days of old, who 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 really felt that the prospect of the IGES, uh coming in any day and asking you to unlock your keyboard and to show you show them the files and to explain every keystroke mm. that is a that is an incredibly powerful um, uh, check on hubris on excess on abuse of power that most people in Australia don't realise exists. It's actually a very robust mechanism, one of the most robust in the world. But it's really critical for trust and confidence in an open liberal democracy like ours, which is being buffeted by so many other challenges externally.
2: No, no right to silence uh, with, the Igis, with the Igis either. So yeah. it, it really is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, and very important to just to maintain to maintain that public trust because sometimes overclassification, classification for example, can be seen as an exertion of power yes. you know, ra- rather than justified.
0: And, and uh, another enduring principle from the Hope Royal Commissions uh, that's been reflected in that legislation and that evolution you've charted there, John, is still this sense that these agencies have to be subject to... Uh, if not being entirely civilian agencies, they have to be subject to civilian leadership and and oversight, which is obviously a bit of a change from that those original organisations you sketch, which were primarily military.
1: So I'm I make wa- the distinction: it's 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 civil authority. It, it, whether it's a uniform person or not is it's not yeah. the point. It's the reporting to to executive civilian elected government. That's yes. the point.
0: Yes, yeah. that's and that's what I'm emphasising. But I'm I'm wondering then with this turn of ASD to conducting offensive cyber operations, which were publicly acknowledged in 2017. Mm. Um, what your reflections are about an organization that is undertaking increasingly or has a capacity to undertake essentially a, a warfighting tool, uh, whether that configuration of it being uh, you know somewhat air-gapped from the Trone defense force is still sustainable. Appropriate or whether into a new era of modern warfare, whether that arrangement needs to be potentially reevaluated?
2: Well, you, you know that a new cyber strategy is under discussion at the moment. I'm really looking forward to it because uh, I, I think it's important, it will be important to have uh, a, a public debate about these things, an open one. Mm. Uh, so, uh, it's it's and it's been a while since we've had that so uh, i'm i'm just waiting for it
1: yeah I, I would add also that we um we we tend to think binary in binary terms about war and peace and about uh the use of uh kinetic effects or inter, in you know disruption disruptive powers um i, I think what we're facing though is um a, a, a clash of understandings of, of the, the world we live in, and um, I think what we're facing is, uh, you know, a, you know, some people call it hybrid war. I think it's better, in my mind, it's better to think of it as unrestricted competition. So it's not war; no one's shooting at us, but we are being, we're being. There's a real serious competition. The gloves are off, if you like, on a range of fronts, uh, and it is that com- competitive, competitive. Environment that is driving the need for greater, uh, more responsive and more nimble uh, cyber uh, uh, capabilities, more offensive cap- cyber capabilities to disrupt uh, would-be adversaries from their malevolent actions that are inimical to Australia's interests, that aren't about killing people, they're not about destroying buildings, but they're about undermining our... Uh, you know, compromising our institutions, undermining our position, uh, minimising, mitigating the effects of our of our engagement in the region and uh, uh, affecting societal norms and perceptions of trust and confidence in institutions of state, now, all of which require, you know, a range of positive responses, one of which is that we need to be able to trust people to do the right thing. We need to, we, when the great thing about our country, you know, uh, the, of a liberal democracy like ours is that, if, if you don't like them, you can vote the bastards out, uh, you know. And 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 that is, it, it's a strength, but it's also a vulnerability. And and we need to. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Karl Popper, who, uh, you know, in the late mid to late 1940s, wrote the book The, the Open Society and Its Enemies. Uh, uh, He articulated uh, some of the key vulnerabilities of open societies and the need for vigilance for those open societies against authoritarian states that would seek to undermine them. And so that's, I think, a useful way to frame why ASD and the SIGINT enterprise, particularly in the cyberspace today, given that we've gone from being web-enabled to web-dependent and in turn web-vulnerable. Uh, ASD and the SIGINT, Australian Cyber Security Centre, and cyber bodies like CyberCX and others have a really critical role to play in protecting and assuring the institutions of our civil society into the future. And so this. Really, you know what I think is like a Copernican revolution has happened in the SIGINT enterprise, formed in 1947 with a with a title that was designed to deflect attention. The Defence Signals Bureau. What the blazes is that? Right? <laughs> right? Um, it, it's not Telstra, right? Uh, uh, and and then so and and then in the last decade or so, we've seen it, the coming out of of SIGINT. And the cyber domain, particularly with the transformation from the analogue to the digital world, the digital era, that, that the cyber domain is, is so critical. And ASD has effectively been, I would contend, the intellectual hearth from which much of the cyber security expertise of the nation has emerged. Um, and I think it's really important for us to, as a nation to recognise the, the importance of this institution, the criticality of this institution uh, and the importance to recognise its centrality in statecraft and in protecting our nation, our people into the future.
2: Yeah, I, I would go even further than that and say that standing still isn't an option anymore. Um, I, I need to check this, but I read I read the other day that that group, the Shadow Brokers, who leaked information about cyber weapons from uh, from the NSA. Mm actually did something to an Australian chocolate factory. So we you know the days when uh, being in Australia and a long way from mm. from uh, other centers of action doesn't work for us anymore. No, so right. so we, we we actually we actually need to adapt to that. Mm.
0: And I think that's why histories like yours are so vital to building up that um, context and that understanding that people need to have. Um, for, for these institutions. Um, before I let you go, I did want to have a question. I, I did want to ask you, uh, about, uh, the process of writing an official history like this. Um, it's noteworthy, I think that, uh, you're, you're both people that have had experience within government, um, extensive experience within government. And that has probably informed the kind of erudite and insightful way in which you're able to grapple with this sometimes esoteric information. But on but how have you in the process of undertaking this research how have you tried to perhaps uh, balance or otherwise account for potential biases that might emerge because uh, there is an extent to which people can say well if you've if you've worked in these institutions and you're now involved in writing the history can you be writing the fullest kind of objective uh, account
2: well uh we' we're being, we're being as objective as, as as we can there are obviously things everybody would admit that there are obviously things which uh, which can't be disclosed because of uh, matters like safety protection of sources and methods and so on but at the same time uh the people the public has to be able to trust its institutions like ASD, like asd and they and people actually who pay those agencies really have the right to know as much as we can reasonably tell them. But with with those caveats that certain things need to be kept secret.
1: So this was a dilemma David Horner, Roosh Crawley and I faced in writing the ASIO history. Um, we found an organisation that was very accomplished, did remarkable things but did some other things that were not so creditable. And we felt the need to call it the way we saw it uh, without giving away uh, mm. sensitive, ongoing operational uh, details. And uh, we struggled with that, uh, but we succeeded, I believe, in doing that. Um, and we, in, the intention was to do exactly the same with uh, mm. the ASD history. Um, it's a... I think a a great shame that the project was terminated by ASD. But I think if you look at it, you will see that we have uh, sought to do credit where credit is due um, and we've sought to expose limitations where they are important to expose. And that the story, uh, you know, we, we remain fragile, flawed, biased human beings but it is our best shot at giving the Australian people um, and beyond a clear understanding of the importance, the significance, and the enduring utility of this institution of state to Australian security.
2: Par- paradoxically, I would even say that after the, after it, 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 I believe it was it was a pity for ASD that the project ended, but that's just me. Hmm. But. Um, paradoxically i would say that after after that ended just being unconstrained although we were still careful but not constrained in that way yeah actually and also broadening the scope of the project because we were also writing then about the three services and up to mm. the present day those it it began the subject really began to reveal its secrets mm. and uh the people that we were writing about really started to come to life.
1: Mm. So
2: paradoxically, it worked. It worked out, I think.
1: Yes, in a backhanded way, <laughs> probably worked to our advantage. Mm. Oh no, it's an
0: excellent resource um, to all future scholars, I think. And and there is, it's always great to hear the kind of um, creative voice that can be put through an unofficial history that sometimes doesn't make it into. Uh, official version so I enjoyed um, reading it immensely and I'm sure uh, our listeners will as well because they'll be rushing off to get uh, get a copy of their own either um, digital copy or physical one I think a digital one would be fitting given the subject matter Uh, but thank you both uh, Claire and John it's been a delight to talk to you today
1: great to be with you Will thank you very much
2: thank you